We all go a little mad sometimes. Psycho, 1960. Hi, friends and weirdos. Welcome or welcome back. I'm Cassie. And I'm Tiffany. This is Happy Hour Gets Weird. And this week's episode is another spooky episode. And we took inspiration for the cases that we're talking about from classic horror movie settings. Yes. Sometimes the setting is a character all on its own. Yes. Which I'm really into. Yes, you are. So, Mm -hmm. before we get into this episode, what's our cocktail this week? We are drinking, and here's the thing with the cocktails. When I actually drink them when we record, I don't have a name of like an official name for them yet, but I always mm-hmm. try to officially name them on Instagram where we list the, where we post the pictures and the recipe. Excuse me. So if you're interested in some of the kind of cool themed names I come up with, check out our Instagram uh, where we put that. <laughs> I can't think of words today. Anyways, so gin is our alcohol this segment or this block so i made a ginger and lychee tom collins that sounds amazing it is so good fun i have never i've had lychee before but not actual the i haven't actually had the fruit actually have had the fruit in i think on vacation in uh maui or Kauai. excuse me but I've never cooked with lychee before, and they taste kind of like pears a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so it is club soda, lemon juice, and I made a simple syrup with ginger and lychee. And just because, you know, I'm an extra maximalist, I threw in a couple basil leaves. You don't have to do that. I did. I'm just <laughs> wild and crazy, I guess. And then um, I just did... Uh, Empress Purple Gin, which is beautiful for spooky season because it's a beautiful purple color. And um, you just give it a little mix. You mix it right in the glass and it's super easy, super delicious. It's beautiful and I highly recommend. I'm not just saying that because I made it. (laughs) If Cassie had a full herb garden at her disposal, these drink recipes would be three pages long (laughs) because she cannot resist. I can't adding that extra ingredient i can't every time my brain is like what's that what do you say wackers bonkers and then wackers bonkers (laughs) like kill him but instead of my wackers bonkers saying kill him it says add the herb you know what i mean (laughs) oh you naughty wackers bonkers (laughs) (laughs) oh my god okay okay so as we said we focused this week's episode on horror movie locations. Yes. And I know that this episode is a little heavy, which you're going to get into in a minute. Mm-hmm. But do you have a location that you really love? Like if you see a movie that's at a certain location, you're like, I'm there. I have to watch it. Um, or is it more about cast and theme for you? It's definitely, I would say it starts with a theme, but I actually have a soft spot for horror movies that take place in small towns. Oh, I could see that. So, you know, like I would say Halloween is a great example of that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of a small town. Everybody knows everybody. I was just watching House of Wax, which I don't think I saw when it came out. And that is small town mm-hmm. uh, vibes. I think I've only seen like some movies are just always on TV mm-hmm. during October. And I think I've just seen bits and pieces of it. <laughs> but um, kind of an odd bedtime choice. Not going to lie. <laughs> I'm from a really small town, which people that have listened to this and you obviously probably know, mm-hmm. but um, they can be kind of spooky. Uh, although my small town was featured on a ghost hunting show and they made it look much scarier than it is in real life. Much, much scarier. And that's all that I'm going to say about that. Um, yeah, I... <laughs> saw that episode of that show and I'm just gonna say for the record not a fan um (laughs) (laughs) but I just think there's something about small town like small towns could go I think we've talked about this at some point but they could go really good or really bad like a small Mm -hmm. town could be like super wholesome super welcoming super warm you walk down the street you know everybody there's a local diner you see all the same people like just a you know, a sense of community. And then the other side of a small town could go so wrong. So like outsiders aren't welcome. Go back to where Mm -hmm. you came from kind of vibe. You don't Mm -hmm. belong here. It's singled out. So I just feel like sometimes I'm rooting for the small town and sometimes I'm rooting for the killer. (laughs) (laughs) So anyways, what about you? Um, Okay. So I do like small towns small town vibes um I also like when it's something like a haunted whatever haunted spaceship Mm -hmm. haunted uh mansion Mm -hmm. haunted what have you Mm -hmm. like a ramshackle whatever it is Mm -hmm. (laughs) and since we've been talking about horror tropes I recently just saw an ad or I watched a trailer for a movie on Netflix that's coming out that's not haunted, but it's um, a vampire on an airplane. Mm-hmm. I've seen it. And the trailer or the whole movie? The whole movie. Okay. I just want to say the trailer looks a little out there, <laughs> but kudos to you, Netflix, because I don't think I've ever heard of uh, vampires on a plane trope. We're sitting here talking all these horror movie tropes, and I think they might have actually found a new one. Yeah, I have never seen a vampire on an airplane trope either. And it has a couple of other interesting, not necessarily horror movie tropes, but just movies in general. So I thought it was a cool mashup of tropes. Uh, Did somebody say, get these motherfucking vampires (laughs) off this motherfucking plane? No, but it was a major missed opportunity. Oh, my God. (laughs) I don't know if I can watch it then. Oh my gosh, that would have been the best cameo of all time. Oh my god, seriously. <laughs> it would have been worth the five million dollars it would have cost him. <laughs> he was like, okay, do you want me to say I'm tired of these motherfucking snakes on this motherfucking plane or low interest rates with Capital One? <laughs> <laughs> What's in your wallet? Those are your options. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so. I do actually, at the end of this show, I do kind of want to wrap up with talk of a horror limited series that we both just recently watched, um, Mm -hmm. Midnight Mass. 
I have some mm-hmm. thoughts about that. So if, if you watch Midnight Mass and you want to be in on this conversation, stick around to the very end of the episode. But we're just going to get right into it. Do you want to go first or would you like me to go first? Uh, I'll go first. Okay, so my sources are mlive.com, an article from that, nydailynews.com, medium.com. I listen to two podcasts. One is called Michigan Crime Stories Podcast, and the other one is called Most Notorious Podcast. Uh, These podcasts gave me a lot of information. They're the exact opposite of our pod. (laughs) So just, yeah. Cassie will list our sources in our show notes because I know that those aren't very specific sources I just shouted out there. Yeah, I always list the direct links to to anything that we use for a source. Cabin in the Woods, Cottage by a Lake, The Vacation Home. These are all common locations for horror movies. Too many movies to name. Literally the movie Cabin in the Woods. <laughs> There is Jason at Camp Crystal Lake, Last House on the Left, Strangers. Everybody can think of probably 50 movies right now. And before I get into my story, I just want to say that I love having these themes, like the horror movie location theme, to help group our episodes for the spooky season. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like me and Cassie have so many ideas, and we really need a way to corral these fucking drunken wild stallion ideas that are running through our minds at all times well yeah I definitely need a theme to direct my squiggly brain yeah so I like that too so even though we have you know whatever this theme and even though our episodes leading up to this episode have been kind of Mm lighthearted, I just want to say that the story that I'm covering today and the case that I'm covering today is definitely not lighthearted or silly Mm -hmm. um frankly it was when I was researching and I came across this case, it was darker than I intended to cover. But once I found it, I really wanted to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Also, my case is a murder case. And although I don't get overly graphic, it is heavy. So there's a trigger warning. If this isn't the episode for you, maybe check out some of our other more lighthearted stuff. Right. I think that our listeners that have stuck around with us for a while know that our episodes can be super silly or very serious. Mm-hmm. And this one is not a silly story and we wouldn't quite honestly be doing spooky season and having a true crime podcast if we didn't cover a serious true crime during spooky season and with the theme of like true life horrors today i'm going to be covering the case of the robison family murders in 1968 the robison family was very well off financially Dick Robison ran a publishing company called R.C. Robison and Associates and published an art magazine called Impresario. The family consisted of the parents, Richard, 42, and Shirley, 40, and their four kids, Richie, 19, Gary, 17, Randy, 12, and Susan, 8. The Robison family was vacationing at their summer cottage by Lake Michigan. Their waterfront cabin was in Blisswood Resort, a vacation community located near the small town of Goodhart in Michigan. The resort was dotted with cabins and large trees lined the lake. A beautiful place to be sure. During this portion of their summer vacation, they decided to head to Florida for a few weeks and informed their nearby neighbors of their plans. 1968 obviously didn't have the kind of phone email communication we do now. 
The cabin was also known for having really bad phone service. Sometimes the family would have to go to a neighbor's house if they needed to make a call. Even today, there's not good cell service there. So I believe they just kind of spread the word of their departure to those they visited during their stay. Unfortunately, the Robinsons never made it to Florida. On June 25, 1968, the Robinson family was murdered. 27 days after the horrifying murder of this family, their bodies were discovered. Oh my goodness. Over half a mile away from the scene, some ladies were out on their porch playing cards, but they were distracted by an awful smell. The caretaker of the vacation property was contacted, and soon two unsuspecting men followed the scent to a scene beyond comprehension. When they came upon the cabin, they found a note on the door that read, Be back by 7.13. When police arrived on the scene, an idea of how the murder took place was formed. Police believed that the perpetrator, a single person, first shot from outside the residence with a rifle. He then entered the premises and finished his murder spree inside with a different gun as well as a claw hammer. So I'm going to read the description of how the bodies were found pretty much verbatim from the website MLive. I don't want to lose any of the information in my attempt at putting this in my own words. Something might be lost in translation, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Also, two autopsies are mentioned here, and this is for obvious reasons. The murder investigation was a long one and more than a single autopsy took place. So this is from MLive, and it is, and in it there are also embedded quotes that are direct quotes from the autopsy reports. Shirley 40. Shirley was found lying on her stomach on the floor in the southeast section of the living room. A plaid blanket was covering her body except for the area below her knees. She was shot in the head once. A 25 caliber slug was found in the first autopsy. Dick 42 was found lying on the floor in the hallway over the hot air register. He was shot once in the head. A 25 caliber slug was found in the first autopsy. He also had skull fractures and evidence of, fl- of blunt force trauma. During the second autopsy, a 22 caliber slug was found. Investigators believe he initially was shot in the chest with a rifle, then in the head with a pistol. Richard 19, the student at Michigan University, was found in the northwest bedroom of the structure, partially in the hallway and partially in the bedroom. His legs were extended out into the hallway. The couple's oldest son had multiple gunshot wounds to the head, linked to a 25 caliber slug. Gary, 16, the student at Southfield Lanthrop High School, was found lying on his back along the east wall of the northwest bedroom. The teen had two gunshot wounds to the head, both linked to 25 caliber slugs. The second autopsy found a 22 caliber slug and evidence that he was also shot in the back. Randall, 12, was found lying on top of his father, a lavender-colored rug from his shoulders down to his buttocks. The youngest son's cause of death is listed as a gunshot wound to the head. No bullet was recovered during the autopsy. Susan, 7, was found lying on her back in the hallway at the south side of her father. The couple's youngest child was shot in the face. A 25 caliber slug was recovered from her clothing. She also had a skull fracture, possibly from a claw hammer found at the scene. So, obviously incredibly brutal. Yeah, I had to um, take a drink after all of that. That is horrific. So basically, just to kind of set the stage up and to tell here, the caretakers 
got to the cottage, immediately saw a body Mm -hmm. and just went and got the police. The police came. They did their initial autopsy and invest, you know, investigation work at the scene. And Mm -hmm. that is their description of what was in the cabin upon their arrival and upon the the autopsy where they recovered the bullets. The the bullets. Mm -hmm. After the horrible attack on this family, it was determined that the killer locked all the doors and closed all the curtains. He attempted to cover exterior bullet holes and cranked up the heater. Oh, my God. Then he was gone, leaving only a single footprint and a few shell casings behind. Autopsies had to be done at a local fairgrounds because the decomposition was so bad that moving the bodies was extremely difficult. Also, the smell was horrible. In fact, the cabin was torn down a couple of years after the murders because the staining and smell of the crime just could not be washed away. Oh, my gosh. I believe they said they had to remove like a couple of feet of the sand underneath the cabin. Oh, my gosh. What? This is why would he turn on the heater to speed up decomposition to to hinder evidence retrieval? Oh, okay. Well. And it had been 27 days with, you know, the heat on. Yeah, they were, the heat, plus it was mid-summer, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my goodness. Those, that poor family. It's really, it's really, really brutal. That was also another reason why I didn't want to reword everything is mm-hmm. because it's tough reading something 10 times so you can put it in your own words. Well, yeah. Mainly because I didn't want to miss anything, but that contributed to my decision mm-hmm. um local detectives began questioning anyone and everyone that could possibly be involved investigators questioned others at the resort but of course it had been weeks since the day of the incident which is never good people had heard sh- gunshots but it was wasn't even dark yet when the crime took place and people assumed that somebody was just shooting seagulls away from their property which i guess must have been pretty common right Finally, their questions turned to those close to the Robinson family. And detectives, based on the attack, believed that Dick was the main target in the murders. Okay. Evidence seemed to lead investigators to only one suspect, an employee of Dick Robinson. His name was Joseph Scalaro. Now, I went back and forth on whether or not I wanted to use his name, Mm -hmm. and you'll soon see why. But because his name and information is so readily available on every single source I used, it seemed pretty pointless for me not to use it here. Right. Joe Scalaro had actually requested the meeting with detectives and immediately they got a bad feeling from him. So Joe's alibi didn't check out for the day of the murders. He also claimed that he hadn't spoken with Dick the day of the shootings, but phone records proved otherwise. Joe also had a history, which he admitted to, of stealing from the company. The weeks leading up to the murders, Joe gave himself a raise as well as other employees without the authorization of Dick, who's his boss. He had also bumped up his own expense account. Yeah, it must be nice. Just, I think I deserve a raise, so I'm going to take it. And also, I have some shit that I want to buy, so I now have a higher expense budget. Thank you. Yeah, basically, Dick was on this kind of long vacation, which I I believe it was said that they had never done a vacation like this before, mm-hmm. but the company was doing really, really well. And it's 68, so it's like, it's not like he's getting emails and shit 
right. on the hour. You know, right. he was really trying to unplug. And while Dick was on vacation, Joe pretty much was just doing whatever he wanted. I think that he had some checks that were pre-signed for business expenses. Right. And that was how he managed to pull off some of the shit that he did. It was said that Joe had embezzled hundreds of thousands of dollars by today's money from the company overall. And Dick had become aware of suspiciously low company funds in the days leading up to his murder. There was supposed to be a certain amount in the company accounts. Mm-hmm. And when he checked in because he had another deal that he was working on in the future, he was notified that the funds were not what he thought that they were supposed to, you know, they were not where they should have been. Yeah. So that's pretty damning that right there. There was definitely a financial motive for Joe to commit these crimes. Right. Joe was pretty willing to speak with police. He didn't lawyer up or anything. And this usually kind of makes me feel someone has nothing to hide. But in the case of Joe, I think he was just cocky. I was just going to say it could be, like you said, nothing to hide. But it also could be combined with his history, a bit of I'm too smart for you. The Ted Bundy experience. Yes. The narcissist is in him is thinking like, I don't need a lawyer. I'm super smart. So all of this interrogating and evidence took time. A lot of time. The prosecutor in Emmett County, which is the county where the murders took place, didn't want to bring about charges until there was concrete evidence. So even though police believed they knew who did it, there wasn't a ton of physical evidence at first. Because of the shoe print at the scene, they tested all of Joe's shoes for blood and they didn't find any traces of blood. They also gave him polygraph tests, which I believe it was like he both passed and failed polygraphs, which doesn't really help anybody out. No. Right? There were all of these little things adding up that detectives just could not ignore. Joe was a former sharpshooter in the army. He was stealing from the company. He talked to Dick that day, and it was like several back and forth phone calls, which kind of leads one to believe it was a fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, his alibi didn't line up. So detectives just started following Joe around, waiting for him to slip up. Joe had taken over Dick Robison's company. What? Which is really fucking gross on top of everything. Yeah. Um, so he was basically running that into the ground because he sucked. Oh, my God. And dodging detectives for a long time. Years passed, and then detectives got the evidence they needed. Police obtained records that showed that Joe had purchased two guns that were the same type as what was used in these murders. A 25 caliber Beretta automatic pistol and a very uncommon 22 caliber AR-7 rifle. Which this is an uncommon gun because I asked my husband about it and he was once a Marine, always a Marine. Mm-hmm. And he hadn't heard of the gun, which I was shocked by because he was a rifle range instructor and in the military. But so I guess it must be pretty uncommon. Anyway, unfortunately, these two guns that the police found were the right type, the right caliber, but neither had ever been fired. What? Then detectives found out where Joe liked to go shooting, a private range owned by Joe's father-in-law. Detectives taped off a grid on the grassy range and searched meticulously, and they found AR-7 shell casings there that exactly matched those found at the crime scene, according to a state police lab report. They also went back and checked all of Joe's shoes again. So although none of them actually had 
traces of blood on them. Mm -hmm. They matched the print. They found a shoe that would have made the same print as what was found on the scene. And this is when police became aware of this little quirk that Joe Scalaro had. He, if he found something that he liked, he would buy it in, in two. Oh my goodness. So, you know, I like this jacket, better buy it in two. I've done this. I've bought like five of the same Target t-shirt because I like the way it fit. Yeah, I totally, I have done this too. So he would buy everything in two. So they believed that he had bought two of each of the guns and disposed of the ones used in the crime. That's why he had the same guns, but they had never been fired. And the same with the shoes. He had bought two pairs of the shoes, but had thrown away the ones used in the at the crime. Well, I was thinking too, okay, the shoe matches the print, but what if Joe loved those shoes and he just threw away the ones that were used at during the crime, but then just went out and bought a new pair because he loved them so much and he had to throw them away because he's a dirty, rotten murderer and it got blood all over them. He, that might have been the case too. He was just the kind of guy who bought things in multiples. And I guess it was like a well-known trait of his, but obviously if you don't know him, you're not going to know. Right. The county where Dick Robinson's business was located was Oakland County, and they took over the prosecution side of things because Emmett County still hadn't brought charges on Joe. Basically, Oakland County was like, let me see your paperwork. I want to nail this guy for the murder of this family. Yeah. And because they said that Joe Scalaro had planned the murders in Oakland, bought the weapons in Oakland, and the business was in Oakland, they could prosecute. I was just going to ask, how what how did they move around that jurisdiction issue but okay unfortunately before charges could be formally brought up against joe scalaro he died by suicide Mm. some people think he knew he was going to be charged others claim it was due to his feeling the business he was now running Mm. police close to the case as well as the author who wrote the first book on the murders believe joe scalaro was the murderer however even up until his death, he denied it. Oh. He left a note, a suicide note, which I'm going to read now. Quote, Mother, where do I start? I am a liar, cheat, phony. Any check that any of the people have with your signature isn't any good because I forged your name to it to get them off my back. I know I'm sick, but seeking help isn't going to help the people I've hurt. He added a postscript, quote, I had nothing to do with the Robisons. I am a cheat, but not a murderer, end quote. Oh. So this is why, like I said, it was conflicted about using his name. Mm-hmm. But as I said, it's everywhere. So what is our little pod going to do to add to the pile? You know? Right. This case left such a scar on the community, and rightly so. That in 2019, to mark the 50th anniversary of the Robison murders, retired investigators joined forces with a local historian and the author Marty Link to hold community forums on the case. A standing room only, multiple day presentation with the intent on ending rumors that have swept through this small vacation village for decades. And there are a ton of rumors surrounding this case, which is not surprising. Small community, Technically still unsolved. So I'm going to say some of the rumors now. Okay. And I did I did call him a dirty, rotten murderer, which I take back because I do believe innocent until proven guilty. They, we don't 
know if he did or not. Law enforcement and the community and the people that knew the Robisons had a hunch, but wow, this is a tricky case. Okay, what are the rumors? There was obviously rumors of like a drifter coming through town and doing it. That's mm-hmm. always the case. Nobody ever wants to believe it's somebody in their own community. Right. Um, there were rumors that it was John Norman Collins, the co-ed killer. Oh. Just because I believe he went to the same college as one of the boys, but they weren't even in the same circle. Okay. Um, there was a rumor that to me is pretty shitty they blamed the former owner of the vacation resort itself so the owner had a son die in a motorcycle accident right before the robison murders and the the dad found his son oh my goodness he crashed his motorcycle the dad found him which is obviously traumatizing yes and the robisons didn't attend the funeral and people said that 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 the owner was offended by that what uh, yeah, this, this to me is like the most ridiculous and kind of shitty rumor. Like I said, basically that, that former owner after, you know, finding his son right, dead, right. he kind of became unhinged. He would wander around. Sometimes he would be in people's cabins when he shouldn't have been in there. He just, he, I, I think he had a mental break, which is in my opinion, totally understandable based on the circumstances. So some people blamed him, but that just seems like stuff that, you know, kids would tell around a campfire to freak each other out. I don't right. think that there's any merit to that at all. Yeah. Um, there was also rumors that Dick had an affair with someone that was tied to the mafia. And oh. that's why there was such an unusual gun. Detectives did follow this lead, the mafia lead. Dick had some... Un- not so savory situations with secretaries he like pretty much went through a secretary a year okay I don't know if any outright affairs were ever proved and then there's also rumors that Joe wouldn't have had time to commit the crimes because based on the timeline of his known whereabouts he was five hours away and it just seemed like the timeline wouldn't line up according to some people And then some people claim that Joe was involved, but he had an accomplice because how could you pretty much get away with killing this many people by yourself? Right. Which I think, you know, if you're outside, a family's inside relaxing and you're outside of a cabin shooting in, it would be really easy to ambush a family who's not expecting this. Um, The author, Marty Link, mentioned in one of the interviews in one of the podcasts I listened to that she believed the 12-year-old was actually going for the family rifle that was in a, on a certain shelf, but he didn't get there in time. So, um, you know, it happens really fast when you're ambushed. In the case against Joe, you think he is known to the family. They would have come in. Maybe they, I mean, the family would have assumed that it was just going to be a conversation. No, he didn't come in. Oh, he shot from the outside of the cabin first. Oh. He shot outside the cabin into the cabin, hitting the two hitting two people and then he came in and finished the job oh I forgot that part that's okay it's a it's a kind of a confusing ambush situation yeah I don't know I I don't know that seems very tricky I don't know I I truly don't know if it was a ruse to admit that you're a liar and a thief 
Um, and people would think, oh, you would admit that. You might as well just admit if you were a murderer. It's, you know, mm-hmm. just a small leap. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know either. But those involved in the community forum claim that although the murders are technically unsolved by the judicial system standards, they all believe the perpetrator was identified by police all those years ago, and it was Joe Scalaro. Oh, so the court of public opinion has ruled, and they have convicted Joe. So everyone that was involved in this forum, the historian, the former police and investigators that were, some of which were actually work, worked on the case, mm-hmm. and the author of the book on the case they all believe it was joe okay and that he did not have an accomplice okay but because it was never technically solved like i said the rumors just kind of went wild and Mm -hmm. that was another reason why they really wanted to have this kind of city hall meeting Mm -hmm. type situation was because they wanted to squash the rumors and kind of you know i guess give it give the case some closure right One of the forum leaders, Wiles, a historical researcher and a retired high school history teacher, explained, this has just intrigued people for 50 years. It just won't go away. And with a case like this, I can see why people just can't let it go. No, no, obviously. It's obvious why they can't let it go. It's technically an unsolved multiple homicide of an entire family. Including children. Yes, which to me, the fact that Joe would kill the kids is the, I just don't, uh, nothing that I read said this, but to me, the fact that Joe would kill the children is the main reason why I don't understand. I don't understand why if it's financially motivated, why would you kill the kids? I know. To me, that's the biggest actual hole in the case is that if you were financially motivated to murder people, I could see murdering Dick, obviously, or even his wife. Or even the adult children. But why would you kill a 12-year-old and an 8-year-old for financial reasons? The only thing that I can think of, and this is just because, you know, we consume a lot of true crime content, is if they, if the younger children could have identified him. I suppose, but he could have eliminated that risk by wearing a fucking mask. Yeah, I just, I don't, I don't really see there's a real motive to kill the kids either. The one thing we do know is whoever did it is a total fucking piece of shit. Yes. So hopefully with the help of that community forum that happened in 2019 discussing the actual case files, hopefully the community of Goodhart found some closure. Um, I know that it's hard. The community still feels the reverberation of the decimation of a family for sure. Right. If not, maybe time will help. But as I said, it's been 50 years Mm -hmm. and that still hasn't been long enough. Because the lead suspect died and due to requirements in Michigan law, the case is inactive but open. Okay. Still. All right. For more information on this case, check out Marty Link's book, When Evil Came to Good Heart. So she is the author that I was mentioned throughout this. Mm Mm-hmm. She was involved in a few of the um, podcasts that I listened to, and she was quoted in the articles. Uh, She grew up in the area and remembers hearing about the crime over the radio when she was seven years old. Oh, my goodness. So she followed the case basically for years, and then one day was like, I want to read a book about this, and no one had written a book, so she did. 
Oh my goodness. That's amazing. Yeah. So that's the story of the Robison family murder, also known as the, I think also known as the Goodhart murder, but it was a heavy one. But once I found it, I just, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I just wanted to talk about it here. I think I'll probably always think about it. Well, I mean, you have to think about something happened so gruesome like that. Even if it was solved and someone was convicted, I just don't think there would ever be closure on something like that. I don't think that there's ever closure in any murder case, no matter what the result is. I think you're right. I just think it's kind of salt in the wound that nobody was ever actually brought to justice for it. Yeah. Yeah. Because it just, even law enforcement, you know, believing that they knew it was and couldn't prove it ever or didn't have enough time to prove it, you know, it still leaves that sliver of possibility that it it wasn't him, that it was someone else. Mm -hmm. And that is just a whole nother can of horrific worms. Yeah. And maybe that person just got to live their fucking life. Yeah. And there's yep. a there's a lot of other information about the case. I, it's totally something that we could have done like three episodes on, mm-hmm. but I, you know, it's just one of those things. It'll stick with me for sure. Yeah. Well, I think that you did that case justice, and that was a I don't want to say wonderful retelling of the story, but it was a nice tribute to the family. Thank you. All right. So now I'm going to talk about the case that I found. And my horror movie setting was an abandoned hospital. And I kind of, again, uh, flipped this on its head a little bit. Because as you will see, as I go through this case, the abandoned hospital didn't actually happen until after the case so this crime created kind of this horror movie setting okay so um i just want to give a little trigger warning i will be talking about gun violence um so just beware of that and all of my sources um, mostly for the majority came from the union, which is a Nevada County newspaper and, um, www.hauntedplaces.org. Today, the Hugh building is abandoned and boarded up. This once sprawling 32,000 square foot hospital is slowly being consumed by Ivy and satanic graffiti, a true glimpse into a dystopian future. Sounds beautiful. It actually is to like looking into a wormhole, a wormhole into the apocalypse. It is quite beautiful. If that's your thing, if that's your kink, apocalypse, dystopia, um, you would like it. Originally built in 1860, it operated as a county hospital and patients care spanned from general medical procedures to infectious diseases to mental illness until 1975. So almost a hundred years. In the 1980s, the building was then used as a house for low-risk inmates from the county's overcrowded jails. 
and the structure would last be used as the headquarters for the health, education, and welfare building, leading to the acronym HUE. And this is all in Nevada City, California, by the way. Mm -hmm. As a hospital, the historic structure no doubtedly saw a lot of death. However, it wasn't until 2001 when an unforgettable tragedy occurred in the building, dooming it to an inevitable end. My goodness, this is so close and so recent. Mm -hmm. The end came on a cold and rainy day in January 2001. 40-year-old Scott Thorpe was a patient at Hugh under the care of Dr. George Heitzman. Thorpe was suffering from several mental illnesses that caused him to be extremely paranoid. Thorpe thought the FBI was watching him at his home and poisoning him at his favorite restaurant, Lions, located in the nearby town of Grass Valley, California. And if you are from Northern California or you have lived in Northern California, you would remember Lions from like mm-hmm. 90s to early 2000s. Dr. Heitzman asked Pamela Chase, a mental health care worker, to sit in on one of Thorpe's sessions. This particular session, Thorpe just returned from a Toyota dealership where he thought the FBI was trying to watch him. After the session, Thorpe became obsessed with Pamela Chase. He was telling people she was having his baby. She was a chosen one for him, and they were going to be together. He began to write her long, rambling letters. He began to also try to see her at work. And it got to the point where staff wasn't allowed to let him into the building. Oh, no. Unless he was there under care of Dr. Heitzman. Pamela Chase became scared for her safety in all of her career as um, a mental health case worker. She had never dealt with this kind of obsession from a patient before. Uh, She tried getting a restraining order against Thorpe, and she couldn't. Uh, And then... What? Yeah. Oh, my God. This whole thing is frustrating. He began... Then Thorpe began writing letters to Dr. Heitzman saying that if he loses Pamela, it's Dr. Heitzman's fault, and he is standing in the way of their love Mm. yeah it was it was bad stalking is so scary yes we did an episode on stalking before that ended up being so much heavier than i anticipated going into it it's very very scary it is i side note i have someone who's very close to me who is being stalked and it is a constant underlying cause of tension and fear, which leads to so many parts of your life breaking down. It is unbelievable. And this person has tried every legal avenue they can to get her stalker legally removed from her life. And it is nearly impossible. It is a shame that stalking is so hard to prove. It is really hard because they're technically not breaking a law until it gets to a terrible, terrible point. Yes. It's like they get so close to the line and the only way that you can do take any legal recourse is when they step over the line and physically harm you or kill you. Mm-hmm. 
Scott Thorpe's behavior got so bad that his family started to become extremely concerned about his increasing paranoia and he became very delusional and he started to um, hint towards violent behavior towards himself and others. He started to say that he w- if he couldn't be with Pamela Chase, he was going to commit some type of self-harm. Uh, Scott Tharp's family reached was reaching out to Hugh and Dr. Heitzman, and um, it kind of fell on deaf ears. Now, I don't really, because these are all newspaper articles spanning over 15 to 20 years, I don't really know. I would have to assume that uh, because he was under the care of a very specific doctor, that doctor might have been the one who dropped the ball on this case. But I also think that it was kind of a failing of Hugh in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and they so they tried to contact Dr. Heitzman, and they never really got any reciprocation. Um, and then at one point, they started to call Pamela Chase and tell her like he is saying things about you he's excited you're having your his you're having his baby he's excited you guys are married like he we need to do something and pamela chase even recommended that uh thorpe be institutionalized because he was clearly escalating yeah um, unfortunately this did not happen and thorpe's behavior escalated over the year 2000 and it came to a head January 10th, 2001. Around 11.30, Scott Thorpe walked into Hugh and opened fire with a semi-automatic pistol he brought from home. 19-year-old Laura Wilcox was home from college, interning at Hugh. This particular day, she had offered to cover the front desk for a colleague who didn't make it to work because of the storm. The only thing separating her from Thorpe was a sheet of glass that wasn't bulletproof. Laura was shot and killed at her desk. 68-year-old Pearlie May, described as a pillar of her family, was a caretaker for her husband, Emil, and her brother-in-law, George. While George waited in the car, Pearlie May was in the office speaking with Laura Wilcox to schedule George's next follow-up appointment, who was recovering from a broken hip. Pearlie May was fatally shot in the waiting room. Judith Edzards was a clerical supervisor of the office. She was the one who had hired Laura Wilcox. Judith was sitting behind Laura Wilcox in her desk. Judith was shot in the head, through the lungs, in the esophagus, in the right, and in the right shoulder. The bullets ripped through her frontal lobe, which correlates with personality, memory, and ability to recognize. She had to learn how to walk again. She had to learn what things were like a kitchen. And she most often knew what she wanted to say, but the words didn't come out right. Judith has no memory of that day, but when the weather turns stormy, she always gets anxious. 34-year-old Daisy Schweitzer, a single mom working towards her doctorate in psychology, was in her office just steps from the waiting room the morning of January 10th. And this is a quote from the Union article. Quote, the door was locked, but Schweitzer could think of only escaping. 
She touched the gold heart necklace her 11-year-old daughter Emily had given her, said a prayer, and hung out the small second-story window and dropped to the cement below. Even now, the window doesn't look so very high. Yet, the fall broke bones in 38 places, including Schweitzer's feet, legs, pelvis, ribs, and spine, and displaced spinal discs. A break in the first vertebrae exposed the spinal cord, quote, a breath away from paraplegia, end quote. Schweitzer said for nearly an hour, she lay there in the rain while police secured the building. Oh my God. <sighs> Pamela Chase heard the shots from the break room and hid under a table. Scott Thorpe left the Hugh building drove a few minutes down the road to the Lions restaurant in Grass Valley and asked to speak with a manager. The manager wasn't available, but 24-year-old assistant manager Michael Markle greeted Thorpe. He immediately opened fire, killing Michael. It was his third day on the job. Oh my God. Thorpe then aimed towards the kitchen and yelled at the cooks, get out, but followed cook Richard Sinuity and shot him several times. He survived. Thorpe then drove home and called his brother, who was a Sacramento County Sheriff, and confessed to what he had done. His brother then called Nevada County Sheriff, who apprehended Tharp later in the day after a three-hour standoff at his home. Tharp was determined not competent to stand trial due to insanity and was sentenced to life in Napa Hospital for the Mentally Ill, where he still resides today. The police searched his home and found 12 unregistered guns and copious amounts of ammo. The only registered gun was the one he used in the shootings. Oh my God. Laura Wilcox's parents filed a civil lawsuit claiming failed care was a cause of this horrific accident and it could have been avoided if Thorpe had received the care he needed. They won that civil suit. Thank God. Yes. And they used their settlement to create a bill called Laura's Law, which is a court-ordered outpatient care bill for mentally ill people. So basically, this law, it I don't, it's hard for me to understand law jargon and bill speak, so I did the best interpretation I could in, in layman's terms. Basically, what this bill states is that if a person with very specific requirements or who meets the requirements like 18 and over, um, shows attendance to violence, stuff like that. If this person who meets very specific requirements is reported to mental health care professionals by a coworker, a partner, a family member, a therapist, they are required to get care. And if they do not get care voluntarily, under this bill, there will be a hearing held, and in that hearing, it will be determined by a judge that they have to receive mandatory care. So basically what this bill says is, because part of this too was that Thorpe was refusing treatment. He was refi- he was fighting against treatment. He was mm-hmm. refusing. He, he, he was not doing well, and he was not supported the way that he needed to be supported by his doctors and his mental health care providers. Especially since his own family was trying to get him help. Yes, but I, I will say my opinion later about that. Um, 
I feel like there was some failings on their part also. So this bill, it's kind of, it has big supporters and it kind of has big, um, haters, I guess, for lack of better words. Um, mm-hmm. so this bill kind of, some people believe it treads on your, like your rights, your human rights, or your civil rights, as far mm-hmm. as being forced into care. But what this does, it's kind of a two-step bill. So say my, I'll use myself and as, as an example, say my husband calls my therapist and says, Cassie has been showing um, increasing signs of violence. She's not going to treatment. She's not taking her medication. She, she, I feel like she's going to hurt somebody. So this bill would immediately put me in a category where my mental health care people would say to me, you either start doing what you need to do or we are going to force you to do what you need to do with a legal hearing. And if you go to this legal hearing, the judge could say that you are institutionalized or you are automatically inpatient. So it starts out outpatient, which is like, okay, voluntarily Mm -hmm. do what you need to do outpatient. It means go to your sessions, take your medication, take care of yourself, take responsibility. If you don't, we will make you involuntarily impatient and we will force your care for you because yeah. you're a danger to yourself and other people I can see why s- some people might be nervous about this because 100 years ago this sort of thing would be used to hurt people yes basically. of course of course but at the same time if somebody is suffering from a mental illness you can't always expect them to take the correct measures to make sure that they're making the right health decisions for themselves and for the people around them well guess who's against this fucking scientology okay so i'm automatically for it (laughs) yes the enemy of thine enemy is my friend yes is that even a saying yes it is okay okay so now this isn't a federal law this isn't a state law it's it's because it comes down to funding it it was made like a county law and nevada county actually passed this and put it into practice And they have showed this Laura's Law has helped over 40 people. And it actually did the opposite of what critics say is it didn't reduce somebody's human rights or civil rights. It actually, there was only two cases out of, I think, 43 that actually went to the hearing. It turns out that if someone is threatened with a hearing, they will voluntarily take responsibility for their mental health. Because they don't want to be placed at a hospital. Exactly. And ironically, sadly and ironically, just before this happened, Laura had talked to her parents about reporting some of um, the happenings at Hugh and the, I guess, the failings that were going on with the staff and the patients. Um, Some patients were being treated poorly by certain staff. Um, certain staff just wasn't taking the greatest care of patients. And um, so I feel like it's ironic that she would, it's ironic that she would have this feeling before this happened. And then after her parents would kind of pick up where she left off as if she was right behind them, championing them to get this bill passed. So we get to the second part of this and why the fuck that Tharp had so many guns, even though he was under the care of a mental health provider with a serious mental illness. Mm -hmm. 
so Laura Wilcox's family also pleaded with the um, Nevada County Fairgrounds to stop hosting gun shows because while they support responsible gun owners who register their firearms and purchase them legally, gun shows are kind of notorious for illegal gun trades or illegal gun sales, which leads to gun owners possessing unregistered firearms. Yeah, that's like a well-known fact. Yes, and unfortunately and kind of grossly and disappointingly, um, Nevada County voted one eight to one to keep gun shows at the fairgrounds that doesn't surprise me at all yeah and that's really sad and disappointing so daisy the woman who fell from the second story building she completed her psychology hours at hugh after this and that she had hopes of opening a forensic psychology practice um but the saddest thing is she never worked a day again in that office without having a rope ladder next to her desk oh my god this was extremely traumatizing for everybody involved in their families and this was a true real life horror and it's happening more and more and it's very scary for all of us and it just makes me so upset because I feel like this could have been prevented and we need to do our part to prevent these things and we could do things like push for for gun reform and for better mental health care systems for people and there is a special place in hell for mass shooters they really are so evil and the saddest thing is I was reading another article in the union about scott thorpe and his life in napa county hospital for the mentally ill and he is devastated by what he did devastated because he is under the proper care has a proper medication his family goes and visits him and they were also devastated and felt horrible and they had nothing but but sympathy and empathy for the surviving victim's family and um they said that this is he is also a victim as well as the perpetrator because with the proper care he almost seems like him his old self the old scott that almost makes it worse. It does. It absolutely 100% makes it worse. And but I do have to say his brother was a sheriff he should have known that he had all those firearms and they should have been dealt with. That seems absurd to me as well, but maybe because he was in Sacramento, maybe he hadn't seen him physically in a while. Maybe he wasn't aware of how bad his brother was doing because that is a little bit of distance. Yeah. I mean, it's not that far, but it's not like they were living in the same town. Maybe he didn't know, but I'm. if he did, that he is everybody. I believe that they were... I believe, I think his mother was part of that civil suit. She was included in that civil suit. And the county, and I believe Dr. Heitzman was included in the civil suit as well. And the um, Hugh Center. So I can't believe I wasn't aware of that story. It's so close to home. I know. And a lot of people go and visit 
hue now um there's a ton of graffiti which is also very sad because it was kind of a beacon in a gold in the gold mining era um Mm -hmm. and it is beautiful kind of a beautiful building it's um interesting architecture it's like a kind of like a spanish style i would say a little bit Mm -hmm. as a non-architect um but it's been graffitied and it's been there's a lot of vandalism and it's totally boarded up and a lot of people trespass and um they just don't respect it like they should i get it you like old buildings there's a terrible thing that happened there and people are drawn to that because of the macabre and i i get that yeah that's too bad though it'd be nice if it were turned into some sort of a museum or something for the community right there is a um the county sold it to a builder and it was supposed to be developed and it just never happened. And then um, I believe the Maidu tribe was at one time interested in maybe taking, um, asking for the property and the building back mm-hmm. uh, as part of maybe um, setting up a reservation or of some sort. But that also hasn't happened yet. So I don't know. And that is the terrible, terrible story of um the tragic shooting um at the hugh hospital or hugh building in nevada city california that was a rough one but you did a great job telling the story telling a you did a good job telling a really really bad story thank you okay so if you've made it this far thank you so much for listening we are now going to take a minute to discuss midnight mass okay so did you like it? I liked it okay. Did you like it? I liked it okay. So I have a real pet peeve when vampires, when they turn and they don't trans physically transform. I didn't like that none of the people's face, facial features, like they didn't get fangs, their eyes didn't change. Like, I don't... The one vampire was fucking transformed enough for everybody well that one ew i know when he was like at the end when he was like and she was cutting his wings ew it looked kind of sexual i didn't like it uh okay i have to say that first of all with these netflix halloweeny shows that are coming out haunting of hill house was by far the best okay i'm never watching that by the way Watch it. It is so good. I don't like it jump scares. So you know that. It's not that many jump scares. I don't even know if there's any. There's like two. It's just really good. It's way. It, to me, that was the best one. If you watch this one, you can watch that one. It's okay. not that scary. It's just better. Like something doesn't have to be scarier to be better. But it was scarier. I'm more scared of ghosts than I am vampires. Because you believe in ghosts and you don't believe in vampires? Well, I just, we don't live in Transylvania. So. Okay. So. I mean, it was scarier, but anyways, so that one was the best one. Blind Manor was like not as good as that one. And then this one to me is the least good. I just feel like they're just keep getting worse and worse and worse. worse worse. (laughs) They're just keep trying to shoot for fucking Hill House. It's not happening. I know. I didn't. Come on. Okay. The trope where nearly every fucking buddy died pisses me off. I hate that. I hate that. (laughs) I hate that everybody was turned and then killed. And I also... I like the evil underbelly of the hypocrite religion. I love that because, you know, I'm like 
take them down, anti-establishment, yeah. anti-organized religion. So I love the fact where they just like took a shot at like these holier than thou using the name of religion to do evil. I love that part of it. But he wasn't using the name of religion to, to do evil. He was just a fucking idiot who thought it was a goddamn angel and it was a fucking vampire. The other lady was the true villain. Oh, oh the other lady was a raging bitch. Yeah. The, she uh, was such Bev? a bitch. What's her name? Bev or Ben or Bell? I thought her name was See You Next Tuesday. Oh, yeah. That's what? right. That's what it was. No, I'm talking about. I like the priest. He was an antagonist. I like the priest too. He was an idiot. Dumbass. Like, I don't know if you go to a cave and something sucks your blood and you think it's an angel. It literally looks like death. I don't think. Oh, in the Bible, they're always scared of angels. No, this is a fucking ghoul that you carried in a box because it can't go in sunlight. Yes. Also, that reminded me of, I can't remember the name of the case, but where the lady clearly saw aliens and also thought that they were angels. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, these people are fucking dumb. There's those, like, it was like straight up grays. And she's like, you're angels. <laughs> I, so I like the religious aspect just because that's my kink or whatever. But I did like the, the priest. I had a soft spot for him. He had good intentions. He just loved that woman and he wanted oh my a do over. Did that break your heart? That I fucking was broke my bawling. heart. What he said that was his daughter. Bawling, oh. bawling, bawling, bawling. Yeah. When he was yeah. like, I wish I, oh my God. I was like, Ugh. if you would have come in and said to me, let's leave, I would have left with you at, with you at any time. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. Like, is that not what, like so much love there. But I also think that that actor is just really good. Yes. What he, like he is actually a really really good actor so he totally sold it if they would have had somebody else do it I probably would have hated him as well be- yes be- because he was very kind and endearing and he truly loved the people of his church mm-hmm. and he loved his daughter I loved how they made the character stare at her and she was freaked out and I just and then you realize that they actually look exactly the same yes I'm like she is just <laughs> a a another version of him but so i thought it all in all it was good as far as a vampire movie no but as far as suspenseful yes because it did really you didn't figure out what was going on until Mm -hmm. well into it you're like what the fuck is going on here yeah that part is yes i agree i binged it so i didn't have as much of a you know arc there because that's what happens when you binge things yeah i will agree we were guessing 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 Mm mm-hmm and I like that. I yes. like the guessing. I like not having it be obvious. So they did a good job there. Honestly, I was I pretty much liked the show. Like the show was good. Mm-hmm. I just think that Hill House was like really, really, really good. The main thing that bothered me was all of the fucking ten minute monologues. Oh, I didn't like that either. Did every character were they were they just all guaranteed <laughs> a, a speech? I think so. It was in their contract. I was literally screaming at the TV, like, shut up. Just go. Next scene, cut. They talked for so long. The scene where the main guy and the girl were talking about what happens when you die. Oh, my God. It's like, I died five times. I literally killed myself three times over. (laughs) I could have answered that question because I'm dead right now. I'll tell you what happens when you die. I'm dead. And this this, um, tells you, like, so much about me is I thought her monologue was so fucking ridiculous and I thought his was kind of somewhat darkly poetic and I'm just like you sound crazy lady she goes into the sky what are you talking about honestly the speeches killed the show how hot was the sheriff though 
And he's in Bly Manor. But I didn't recognize him because in Bly Manor, he just has a mustache and he has an English accent. Oh, he was so hot. Yeah, he was super hot. Poor guy. The only fucking normal person in the whole well, goddamn island. And then what really pissed and me off. And the doctor, obviously. And the doctor. The what really pissed me off is at the end, the re- gratuitous racial slur, <laughs> like randomly from the kid, the altar boy. I, I, yeah. I was like, I, you it, did, not necessary. Like, anyways. So all in all, it was good. I need you, you, Tiffany, and you listening, if you're still here, The Chestnut Man on Netflix. Okay. Phenomenal. Checking it out. Checking it out. Also, I have had a real shitty time of picking out movies lately. Fail, fail, fail (laughs) on the horror movie spectrum. Trying to find new, I'm trying to watch things I haven't watched before. Failed several times. So if you have any recommendations, send them our way. Did you watch Evil Bong? Evil Bong? Yeah, I told you. Evil Bong, Zombie Strippers. You didn't watch any of those. No, but I did watch Come Play. It's only PG-13, Cassie, so I think you can handle it. Okay. And you know what? For a PG-13, you know, you you can only expect a certain level. Yeah. I think they did a good job for PG-13. I watched it at 10 a.m., so I was sticking with the PG-13, just in case my kids okay. locked in. I am going. <laughs> not too bad. Okay, Come Play. Bad. All right. So The Chestnut Man it is a Dutch police procedural, not my favorite. I don't like police procedurals normally. I feel I find them a little bit dry. Um, but I like this one. I think you will too. It's good. And I think if you like this podcast, you're bound to like the Chestnut Man. All right. I'm in. Send us your movie recommendations. Yes, please. Actually, I'll make a post on social media asking for them. So I'll make it super easy for you. I'll ask for them. You list them in the comments. Thank you. Wham, bam. Thank you, ma'am. And thank you for listening. Yes. And on that note, love yourself, lock your doors, and light some sage. Cheers to that. Cheers to that.